Before we get to today's show, let me tell you about HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you keep your customers happy can feel impossible. Like try to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at the networking event. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. It brings together service and success together on one platform. With AI-powered help desk and chatbots to handle your frontline support tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn more. Hey, hey, welcome to this week's episode of Marketing Against the Grain, your podcast about marketing, taking you behind the scenes on everything growth, marketing, and honestly, just stuff we like on the internet. As always, I'm your co-host, Kit Bodner, and I am joined, well, first of all, don't mock it, but the best thing of his day is a piece of dark chocolate. And if you think his marketing takes are in the gutter, wait till you hear what he thinks about peanut butter. <laughs> oh, I can't believe we're going to go there. It's the one, the only, Kieran Flanagan. Kieran, you like crunchy peanut butter, man. What the heck? I'm shocked. I'm shocked and appalled. If there was a poll, you would be on the losing side, Kip. I don't think so. Oh, I think all of the replies were crunchy. There was like maybe one or two smooth. Smooth is... What is the point in, in having smooth? Smooth. <laughs> delicious. Why do you want like bits of peanuts stuck in your teeth while you're having like a sandwich or toast or something? They're the best part. Like, what? No. Then just eat a whole peanut. Why do you need like a half and half? Like you can't decide whether you want to eat a full peanut or if you want peanut butter. Like I don't because understand. You can't, you can't put peanuts on your toast and spread it and it's not delicious like crunching up peanut butter. <laughs> crunching up peanut butter is for uh, people who are, you know, truly love the peanut butter experience. Smooth, I think, is just for people who are not really into peanut butter. Oh, oh, so you're throwing background shade that I don't really even like peanut butter because I don't like crunchy peanut butter. I don't think you do. Man, I, I thought we were friends. I've had slacks today. People on your team, Kip, telling me they're team crunchy. Those people were wrong. And they do not have good taste in peanut butter and don't know how to, you know, quite frankly, maybe eat in general. I don't, I don't understand. If the listeners leave us a review, we love reviews. That's true. Please do leave the review. If you like the show, please do that. And then tell us if you are Team Crunchy or Team Smooth. All right, Kieran, I want to talk to you about something I saw that is pretty awesome. So for everybody listening, we're going to cover a ton of awesome Twitter-related content today. But I want to talk to you first, Kieran, about some place we're going to go that you're really going to want to go. Are you excited to hear about this? I'm excited. This is IRL. So I was talking with Kat Tooley, who's on our team, who runs events and experiences. And one of the things I was talking about, I was like, who runs like really great enduring experiences where they've created this experience around their brand that like lasts for months, years in perpetuity, right? Because most experiences are very kind of like point in time when you're a marketer. It's like, oh, I'm sponsoring this thing or I'm creating this cool like one or two day activation kind of deal. And we, so we had a cool conversation about that. And then a couple of days transpired and I saw something, Kieran, that I thought was the personification of this and I got to share. Okay, share. It's great marketing. It's called Hotel Mario. Oh, is this for the Switch? So, no, no, no. They took the original Nintendo headquarters in Kyoto, Japan, where Nintendo started and they have converted it to Hotel Mario. No way. You can now go and stay in the original Nintendo headquarters. Oh my God. I'm Googling this. It's completely <laughs> Mario'd out, completely Nintendo'd out. Think about the marketing genius this is. They took this like building and then made it this core tentpole of the whole brand, the whole experience, a way to activate these people who are totally passionate about Nintendo and about their products. Hotel Mario in Kyoto, I wanna go, I wanna go really soon. 
Are you pulling it up? I'm pulling it up. I'm trying to see what it looks like. So I want to go there as well. <laughs> it's amazing. You don't hear about brands doing these kind of really big, significant kind of enduring tentpole investments in their super fans and their communities. And I saw this one come across and I was like, holy guacamole, that is awesome. That is awesome. As somebody who grew up playing Nintendo and occasionally still plays Nintendo products, I really want to go. It's kind of like Lego with Legoland. Lego is one of the ultimate brands that do that kind of stuff. But it's like more of a pilgrimage. And it's like the fact that it's the original Nintendo headquarters is like so yeah, cool. Yeah, it means more. How they did it all. And like they crafted this experience, but it wasn't just about the experience. It was about the place, the nostalgia, the heritage around that experience that I thought was so, so magical. That's awesome. You wake up in the morning, people are throwing mushrooms at you. Step out of your bed. People are trying to jump on your head. <laughs> There's a piranha plant. <laughs> when you get out of bed, you have to roll and jump to the other side. Turtles walking all over the place that you can grab and spin. <laughs> <laughs> Let me show you something. Please. So chess.com is a phenomenal business. Are we back to chess? We're back to chess.com. Yeah. I, I knew we were never going to get rid of chess. Check out chess.com's website. What a phenomenal business. This is an example of something that I think is kind of cool. I'm not sure if it has any real utility in Web3. So this is a NFT marketplace. So you can go to treasurechess.com. Oh, I like the play on words there. Treasure chess. Good branding. You connect chess.com. You can then mint your games into an NFT. Oh, make an NFT of your game. <laughs> and you can sell them on the marketplace. <laughs> I have an NFT that I minted this morning where I beat this person who was much higher ranking than me and I called it the Slay. I haven't put a price on it yet. <laughs> so you can literally go in and you can buy my chess.com victory so i would wanted to see live on air i haven't put a price in do you want this if so what price it's on the polygon network you can go in get some coins buy my chess game just let me know what kind of price you're thinking I'm look i think this is really <laughs> dumb come on this is just trying to use technology for the sake of technology come on let me give you some practical use cases please no one's going to want to buy my chess.com games but there are a lot of great chess players there are. that would be similar to you if you support a tennis, like the top tennis players, if you were a football supporter or soccer supporter, like the top soccer. Mm -hmm. So let's say I could go and own Magnus Carlsen's, like one of the top chess players in the world, world champion multiple times. I could go and own one of his best known games, one of the games where he became world champion or one of the games that was cited in terms of great move. Mm -hmm. I could go actually buy that on the marketplace. The other thing chess.com do is great influencer marketing. So they'll have people like a Mr. Beast and all these people come in for chess tournaments. And so you can go and mint yeah. a chess game from your favorite influencer. So there are some yep. practicalities to it. I think there are some use cases where for super fans to own an actual game from someone you really look up to. I think that's a good use case. What do you think? Yes. Look, I think allowing people to make NFTs of experiences is a very interesting utility for the future. What I don't like about this specific one for everyone listening is that it's very the same. Yeah. It's just a chessboard and it's just like, you know, the person and the move, everything you described as like what was valuable is very disconnected from the actual image, the NFT, everything, which I don't love. Right. You know, where if you could make an NFT of somebody's amazing soccer shot, 
and that's like you're the only person that owns like the most famous goal of that year that's different and i could see that that's like a very interesting thing where you're like i'm a fan of this team i'm a fan of this person i own the licensing rights maybe i could make some money off of people showing this goal in the future like that's awesome but it's like you don't own the move and you can't license the move it's similar in chess actually in the similar way you score goals in soccer you checkmate someone in chess and there are very famous checkmates that's true when you actually really get into chess it's incredible like there are books written about chess games back in the 1800s where people study them and look at all the moves. So I think there is utility in owning a very famous checkmate or a very famous game between two people. But I think it's like a niche use. Like no, one, no one's going to want to buy my chess games. <laughs> yeah, it's not mass market the way they're trying to make it mass market. I think that's the challenge. It's more of like a sports memorabilia auction right. kind of situation than it is like all this marketplace of tons of these NFTs around chess or any other sport. Utility has limits, right? You can't just take it and just push it to the far extreme and make everything an NFT or make everything that's adopting this new utility or new technology. You have to say, oh, what are the things that make this technology really valuable? Right. And there's identity, there's ownership. Those things make it really valuable. And what you're basically saying is, hey, you're probably like 10 or 20 really valuable chess NFTs that should exist in the world, but there's not 100,000 that should exist in the world. Right. Yeah. If you're a brand and you're thinking about experiences and you're thinking about using forward-looking technologies, like understanding the scarcity and the utility and the balance between those, I think is going to be really important for how you execute on your strategy. Agreed. Okay. You don't want to buy my chess game. You could have just said that at the start. We could have just- I, I don't. <laughs> I'm not even going to give you one cent for it. I'm sorry. It's just not happening. Just not. So I've got a great Twitter thread. I want to go, favorite Twitter thread of the week. Bum, 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 bum. It's actually an article on Variant.Fund. There's a Variant team. And it's this entire article around the fact that the next generation of the internet is going to be owned by users. And this is a very important first principle that everybody listening needs to understand. The tweet I thought was pretty well said by the woman, Lee Jin, who shared this and, and, and wrote this article. In Silicon Valley, ownership has long been embraced by startups to align incentives with employees. But the vast majority of internet users own exactly 0% of the products they contribute to. That is now changing via the ownership economy. One of the things we like to talk about on this show is shifts, things that are very rooted today that will be completely different tomorrow. And one of those shifts that we want to talk about is the shift in ownership, the shift of companies and employees owning to the shift in users owning. Mm. Right? That sounds very simple, but it is massively important. And so the quote from this article is, the products and services that will define Web3 or what we'd call the next generation of the internet are those that turn users into owners. We call that the ownership economy. And so they're trying to brand the ownership economy, whether that sticks or not, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm, I'm buying what they're selling on that. But the fundamental example of this shift, I think, is very, very different and can change how companies grow, how you incentivize users, and fundamentally how wealth is accrued in the world going forward. And they've got a pretty good graphic around the amount of companies who are really making this shift. Right. And what's really interesting is they talk about Coinbase and Uniswap. These are two Web3 companies. Coinbase started in 2012. You know, it's a custodial wallet. It's listed on the NASDAQ. 
They have about 3,730 employees. Their trading volume on their platform is $1.9 billion. Yep. Uniswap was started in 2018, has less than 100 employees, and its trading volume is $1.58 billion. And the reason for this is because the decentralization of a web to move to things like Uniswap puts the control and the ownership in the users versus the employees for the same exact problem that's happening. And I thought that was a very interesting point. What's your take on, one, the notion of the ownership economy, and two, this massive change from kind of employee ownership to user ownership? Uniswap actually was vampire attacked and turned into sushi swap. So vampire attack is basically you go clone the code and start a new version of that because some people have disagreed on the direction that that app has taken. And yeah. So like the actual amount of volume going through those two combined is actually quite huge. Huge. People are making a lot of money by betting on projects early, right? Mm -hmm. By being early adopters of certain projects. Now, I think where if you have detractors in the Web3 space where people would argue with you is, sure, it's not the same as Web2 where they're trying to use the product in a fundamental way, they're betting on this product making them money. Yes. Are people really using the utility or are people actually just trying to make bets on terms of what's going to make the money in the future? One of my things I would love to talk to you about is tokenization is going to completely change the way that we acquire people. Okay. I wanted to talk to you about the death of highly scalable LTV to CAC acquisition models as we know them today. Whoa, we're getting nerd alert. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's really scare some people on this podcast and then make them feel better. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take you down and then we'll lift you back up. Okay, look, why do I think this? Well, look, historically in Web2, the best way to grow a highly scalable, positive LTV to CAC model was figuring out paid advertising and building a search model. Mm -hmm. well, why was that? Because they are both very linear channels. I acquire people who have some interest in my product or service and I'm able to monetize them at a high enough rate that I make a good ROI. So what is happening in the world? We've talked about some of this in that Apple privacy has really impacted Facebook advertising. Facebook themselves said it would cost them about 10 million in revenue this year. Their ad revenue business is about 129 billion. So, you know, a substantial yeah. bit of that, like just less than 10%. Why is that for people listening? Well, it's harder for Facebook advertisers to both target their audience and actually track their ad budget. And so you see Facebook pushing into this world where they want a lot of the transactions to happen on Facebook, either through their marketplace or through digital storefronts. It's because they don't then lose that data to Apple. And the other thing is Google is going to copy. So what Apple have done on their iPhone, Google is actually going to do on Android. Mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit about this before. Why else is paid? Marketing costs going up. Well, there's a record number of startups. A lot of those small businesses rely on Facebook advertising to get started. A record amount of VC funding, 40% of that goes through the Facebook and Google machines. And then we have tools like OpenAI can actually write your Facebook ads and the algorithms can do your bidding, so all you're really competing on is budget. Yep. And then search, what are we seeing in search? Well, in 20% of all search listings, we're seeing Google only return seven search results. Now, it tends to be branded search and navigational queries. Yes. So maybe not as bad, because informational queries, it would be much, much worse, but hey, we're seeing that. I can tell you from looking at our own data and then talking to others, we are seeing a decline in organic traffic from keywords. Our rank has not changed, but we're starting to see a reduction. Google's trying to make their money. You know, the privacy stuff is really going to impact everybody who is kind of fed from the marketing spend that's happening. And marketers are ultimately going to get squeezed. They're going to get squeezed. Web2 companies more than ever want to keep you on their platform. They do not want to push you anywhere else. And then we've done the zero click before. We've done 46% on yes. desktop 
result in no clicks, which is about 65% combined on desktop and mobile. We've done all that. So I would love to talk to you if you're a marketer or you're a business and I'm trying to build a scalable model. There are four places that I would love to talk to you in terms of just riff on these for a little bit. Yeah. There's product-led, there's community-led, there's media-led, Yep. there's Web3-led. Each of those have interesting ways where you can still scale your business outside of Google and pay. But first of all, I wanted to pause. If you were thinking through this problem and given marketing execs and people who are trying to build a marketing strategy of the future, uh, a really good plan, a growth plan, what advice do you give them? So I think that advice depends on whether you're in a status quo situation or if you're starting anew, right? So, uh, you, you know, do you have stuff that you're working against or do you have a blank canvas? For everybody listening, I, I'm a deep first principles person. It's like, let's get aligned on what that principle is up front, and then let's make a cascade of decisions from that principle or small set of principles. And when it comes to marketing and building great business models today, I think fundamentally what you have to say is, it comes back to my whole thing about Web3 around making the impossible possible or drastically changing that value exchange. You know, if you think about Everything that Kieran just said and walked us through through that breakdown was great, great data. It was absolutely true. But if you take a step back and you say, hey, well, up until Web 2, everybody complained that marketing was unmeasurable and like fluffy and didn't have a ton of impact. And that was kind of true, right? And then we overcompensated back to our episode on pendulum swinging. We went to the complete other side of the pendulum and we just obsessed about the granular measurement of every single thing. Everything. We had to. We like, oh, is this sent right? It's like, is this word in this <laughs> Facebook ad right? Like every single thing. And it's like, oh, well, if the button's green instead of blue, I get more clicks and I make more money. So I got to have a green button, even if it doesn't make any sense otherwise, you know? And we got to this hyper, hyper rational state. And don't get me wrong. I'm a hyper rational person. I like this world. This is a, it's a world I understand and, and, and get along in. But we lost everything, you know? The whole story that you just told it's actually a story of commoditization of tactics and platforms to the mean because once you just optimize and use data, everybody normalizes against each other and ends up at the same place because everybody has the same data, the same platforms. Right. And, and, and so it turns out we actually have to swing the pendulum back to the fact that like the story is now what matters. The brand is what matters. The things that were historically really hard to measure are now more important than ever. So that's step one. So I would understand that if I was trying to go to market, I first have to start with how do I redefine a category and position my company in a very different way? Because if I position myself as everybody else, I'm going to lose this game of commoditization. That's step one. Say I nail my positioning. Then I have to do two things at the same time. I have to align on one or more of the growth models you outlined. We're going to talk about that. And then we also have to have an emotive reason to believe in this mission that we're going down. People have to smile. They have to want to wake up and help us be successful. And when you go back to that ownership economy, the reason that's an interesting concept is because there are lots of people, your customers, who wake up who are directly incentivized to help you be successful. Exactly. And that's awesome, but it's not enough. You also have to make the emotion around being successful positive and something that they want to be a part of. And so you do that, and then you need to align the growth models you're talking about, Karen. Right. And I think the growth model largely depends on how you can differentiate yourself the most. If that's a Web3 kind of community or ownership-driven model, because you're playing in a space where nobody's doing that, that's interesting. Whether it's, hey, 
you're playing in a space where it's all these stodgy incumbents and you'll have to talk to a sales rep for everything and you can come in with transparent pricing and a product-led motion that will totally disrupt and transform that market. Great, do that. Which model is actually more situational than, than anything else? Do you agree or disagree? The reason I brought this up is because it's very relevant to what you talked about in terms of the ownership economy. And so how are companies doing this in Web3? Well, ownership through tokens, right? Tokens give you a new way to create marketing levers for your business. And so one of the things we did in Web2 is businesses, to market their business, they built up these aggregators, right? We built Mm -hmm. up Facebook, we built up Google, we built up these aggregators because we needed to do really great marketing, great content, great advertising, all these different things to actually be able to get people from those platforms into our products and services. And so Web3 is some way removing those aggregators. We can debate that another time if it really is going to do that or not. But what I find fascinating is in a Web2 world, your core stakeholder is your customer. Mm -hmm. You create a market in the sales machine and your stakeholder is your customer. In a Web3 world, your stakeholder is much, much bigger. It's not just your customers, to your point, it's your users. It's the community at the start of the cycle. You have to be purpose-led from the start, but it's also the developers. If you look at a lot of these Web3 companies, they create large funds for developers to help build out their ecosystems. It's their investors. It's their partners. There's a great article from this on Andreessen and Howard's did I say the second name? <laughs> totally right? didn't get the second name right at all. <laughs> I knew. Ben Horowitz is going to be like, who's this Irish man who cannot pronounce God. my name? Can we just edit over every time? No, we're not editing that out. Leave it in. Can we get someone just to, you know how people have like stunt doubles? Can I get someone to double up and just- <laughs> You want a pronunciation double? I want a pronunciation double that just like says the names. Yeah, like, so your stakeholders are much, much bigger. But I think I agree with you. They had a really good bit in an article I read recently, which is like companies in the future will be, their whole go-to-market is built around purpose. Mm -hmm. Like, why do you exist? Which is what you said. And you need that from the outset to draw people towards you if community is going to happen before your actual customers. People, like who are the stakeholders, right? And who owns the company? Mm -hmm. And that, to your point, is like users, customers, developers, investors, and then governance, which is what we're talking around. And then that really is your go-to-market strategy. I don't think that works for everyone, right? And so I do think that companies are going to be in a world where they have to rethink the way they think about marketing. If you think about marketing just in terms of I can put a coin in and get three coins out, that may get harder and harder. It's going to be way harder. Yeah, as you get whittled away on paid and you get whittled away on search. Totally. And so I think the way that you think about marketing is likely going to need to change regardless of the go-to-market or business model you choose. Kieran, can I blow your mind? Yeah. Do it. Blow my mind. I just got a thought while you were saying all that. And it like, I blew my own mind for a minute and I want to blow your mind for a minute. Let's do it. You're talking about all this. And what's interesting is I was on the train of thought of influence. And part of the hard thing to measure in marketing is how marketing influences one another. And so I got thinking around like, oh, it's interesting. We've historically had this like situation where we felt like the gatekeepers, the company, the sales reps, everybody were biased. They were biased because they had this invested interest in making money. And so what did we do, Karen? We turned to our peer. We turned to our people in our network and we said, hey, you don't have any bias here. Tell me, tell me what I should do. Tell me what I should pick. Mm, yep. The ownership economy completely changes that. Now, 
your peer has just as much bias as the salesperson. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, every, every, yeah, yeah. You've incentivized everyone to promote the product and service. Yes, so how do you get clarity on what the best actual answer is? That's true. There is now a scarcity of getting to the best answer. Then there's like That is going to be a fundamental problem in how anybody, especially in the business world, buys B2B transactions because all of these B2B buyers are going to be completely biased because they're going to have, and this is not a tomorrow thing, but this is a five to 10 year from now thing, they're going to have incentives in all of these things. You're going to be like, I don't know who to trust. Right. And so this crisis of trust that we thought we had solved with peers is actually going to get broken again. That's true. Yeah. All review sites in that world are just affiliate. <laughs> affiliate yeah. They're sites. just affiliate sites. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah. if you think about how people make decisions today, that will be totally obsolete like five years from now. Isn't that mind-blowing? That's not a five to ten year thing. It's starting now. It is starting now. If you're in the Web3 space, yes. that's another thing. Like most of my Twitter feed is like Web3. Yeah, people pumping the stuff they have stakes most in. Most of it is recommendations. Yeah. Pumping NFTs, pumping coins, pumping chains. It's tribalism. Yeah. It's breaking everything into tribes. But to your point, that is the ownership economy. Yes. Whether it's a pro or a con is now we all have a stake and these things doing well. So then if our minds just got blown a little bit, the, the question I would ask you, Kieran, is how do you build trust in the ownership economy? Like how do you understand trust and how to make a good decision in a world where theoretically bias is everywhere? Financial bias is everywhere specifically, right? There's always bias everywhere, but there's now financial bias that is everywhere, not just with like the sales rep and the company. Well, I think there's a couple of ways that you can still kind of decipher this. I think in the future, most companies will have some version of their product for free. So you can be an adult and make up your own mind. Well, so, but do you think that, do you think that's going to push everybody to have a free experience? In, in all honesty, do you, like, we are talking about this crisis of trust. Give the people listening, if they're forward thinking, if they're starting a company or if they're building an enduring company, what would they change right now to get ahead of this crisis of trust that we're going to be in over the next decade? Having a version of your product, mm -hmm. this is not true of every company because it's impossible, but leading with your product is the best way to showcase the problems that you can solve for the companies who can do it. The other thing is building a community of trusts is just as important in this world as it is today, right? You can have a community of trust where someone can go in and interact with people and decipher whether you are truly what you say you are, because what you say you are is not what's written on the website. It's going to be what your community discuss about you when you are not in control of it. Yes, this is my whole point, is what's odd in this is the influence actually shifts away from peers back to companies, but in a different way. Mm. The answer to, I would give to my own question is, you have to really codify your points of view and your methodology around what you believe and how anybody gets the most value out of your product or service, right? And you have to be upfront and tell everybody in your community about that. Because I think what you're going to have to do is say, hey, this is what we believe. This is how we do it. If you agree with us, then ignore all this other bias and come do it. And this is why we think this is the best way. If somebody's out there and they're thinking about something and they're hearing five different reasons from five different people around why this is the best thing for them, they're going to get confused. Mm. If one of your friends is saying this, another one's saying this, and you're like, and they're all like, well, you know, I'm in it because it's, you know, it's good for me. And like, this is how I use it. Where if all those five people are saying the same thing, and you're like, oh, okay, this is clearly what it's about. And does this work for me or not? Is, is how you make that decision. And I think in the last generation of the web, companies led employees and sales reps and marketers and transform go-to-market experiences. In the next generation of the web, companies are going to lead communities 
and they're going to tell the story through the community and set the expectation methodologies through the community versus internally. Not that they're not going to do it internally, but in addition to internally, really. Yeah, it, it adds another wrinkle for companies to think through, right? You have to nail your purpose from the outset. You have to nail your use case, the problems that you solve from the outset. And you have to then have a community who believes in those things, but find a real mm-hmm. balance mm-hmm. between the community who is there because they truly believe in that purpose. Yes. They truly care about the use case and the problems that you solve and are not just a bunch of people doing affiliate marketing aggressively on your <laughs> on your part. <laughs> totally. If you're a brand, right? Yeah. And you start an affiliate program, that affiliate program can really go south for you if you do not have very tight controls over it mm-hmm. in terms of how the affiliates position you, in terms of how the affiliates market you, in terms of how the affiliates speak to other competitors and other competing affiliates about you. Like there's just clear guardrails and restrictions on those programs and for good reason. In this world, it's completely decentralized, right? All of these people own your token. They own your token. Yeah. They're not affiliates to you. They are owners. They're owners. They don't need to promote you through a link. They don't need you to sign off on anything. No. They could just buy your token and then go promote the hell out of you. That is really interesting. Like how do you control the brand quality? Like how do you control how people speak about you? when you have completely decentralized who owns your company. Yeah, so as business models transform, different disciplines happen, right? And so in the B2B world, you had sales enablement. You know, as, sale, as you went to market with sales reps, you needed to enable your sales reps so that they could tell the same story and be empowered and be on the same page, right? Yep. And then there are a lot of company out there with like franchise and partnership business models. And so then you had to enable those groups. Nobody's ever talked about community enablement much. I love that. We are moving to a world of community enablement. Enablement, yeah. Where you're going to have to enable your community to enact and sell and advocate on your behalf with the messages that you're doing. Most of the community talks around community engagement, community mobilization, all of those things. Mm. Well, the financial incentives that we're talking about around ownership, they take care of a lot of those. They're your sales team. Yeah. They're your sales team. They're your extended sales yeah. team. Yeah, and so if you're going to enable your sales team, then you got to enable your community. That's what's going to happen here. I love it. Hey, can we do a real fun thing while we're on this? Yeah, please. I love fun. Can we try to define what is in community? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I know. I know, right? Uh, man, I've been speaking to a bunch of companies who are trying to build out their community strategy. It's so hard. For everybody listening, it's so freaking hard. You go to one company and it's like, what's in community? Hey, it's like the actual Discord, Slack, the things that you interact with each other. And then you go to a different company and they're like, it's everything where someone has subscribed to you, right? Yeah. Subscribe to your blog subscription list, your newsletter subscription list, your Slack, like all of these things combined or your community. There's not actually a definition of it. So when you write about it or speak about it, I think it's really hard for people to know if they're speaking around the same thing. It's very obtuse and it's very vague. I get that. Let's come at this from the principal framework side of our thinking here. And so the question before this question that you would answer is one of the ones I answer a ton is how do you define what's marketing and what sales? And I've always defined something that needs one-to-one human attention and customization to make happen is sales. Yep. Anything that needs one-to-many scale is marketing. Yep. And so let's try to see if there's a framework like that that exists for community. Do you think that you have one yet? Or or where's your head on it? Yeah, I'll give you a community framework. 
and then tell you why it makes things more complex than Static. <laughs> you give me the framework, and I will try to uh, try to attack it with some ruthless simplification. Okay, we've talked about the types of community before: community of product, community of practice, community of hobbies and interests. I think all great communities really focus in on achievements, so they actually care about your personal growth, they care about the connections you make, and they care about how you can display your achievements in some visible way. Yeah. Now there's two ways that you can think about community in my mind. You can say community is purely the connections. Okay. So like to be community, it has to have an account and some way of like interacting with someone, right? That would be actually really easy to define for people. Yep. The other one is I think in the future, you cannot separate your media from community. I think community works perfectly fine in terms of your interactions with people when it's a community of product because those people have an incentive to sign up to your community and use the community because they're a customer. Yeah, totally. And there's no one else competing with your community. You're the only one who's built a community around your product. I think when you go to community of practice, which is around content, education, things that you want to learn, mm-hmm. we are in a world where community has to be thought of in the same way. Like media and community are two of the same things. Mm-hmm. And you have to think about them in totality. So to me, community is anything in terms of where you have a relationship with that person on a medium where they're interacting with you, whether that is like on your social channels, whether that is on your content channels, whether that is in your Slack channel. Now, the only thing is, I think that makes things much more complex in terms of how companies can design teams around community and design strategies. And I can give you reasons why, but I want you to come in and tell me how you think about that. I like what you're saying. I don't think it's all the way there yet. Yep. How I was thinking about it is the world is a two by two and, and like how do you <laughs> organize everything, right? And it's like- uh, The world is a two by two. Can we do that as one of the NFTs? Oh, totally, totally. We world, that? <laughs> yes, we're definitely going to do an NFT of, of me saying the world is a two by two. And so if I think about the two by two, what you're kind of saying is regularity of engagement, right? Do they On one end, they don't engage with you at all. On the other end, they engage with you pretty regularly. And then the second axis is, I think, actually the debate is actually kind of what you're debating. And I'm going to give you a philosophical answer and see if you agree or disagree. The vertical axis there, I would say, is how much they adopt your beliefs. So do they adopt your beliefs a little or a lot? And adopt your beliefs are a proxy for, do they pick you? So it's like, oh, if they engage with you regularly and they pick you, yes, there are other players, there are 10 players in your market, but they spend most of the time with you and they largely believe the same thing you believe in the world, that's your community in my mind. That upper right-hand quadrant of that two-by-two is community. Do we believe that as someone who subscribed to you, regardless of how they subscribe to you, or someone who is actively engaging with you in that channel? Because I think that's two very different things. Let me give you like a really specific example. Give it to me. Is it your newsletter subscription list or is it the people who open the newsletter on an active basis or is it none of those people? That is not qualified enough that you are on our newsletter. It's like you have to be in interacting with us in some other meaningful way. I think you would answer this question through the lens of, well, what is the purpose of community, right? And the purpose of community, because again, begin with the goal and the purpose of community is to basically advocate and build affinity for the product and the brand. We're, we're the marketers. Let's say let's say that's what we're saying. So if you believe that, I think you would say, oh, well, to advocate, you have to believe kind of what we believe, you know, and to drive affinity, drive awareness and everything. You have to engage with us enough to share stuff with people, to actually use the utility around having that stuff. Right. Interesting. And so I would say that top right quadrant is your community. 
And everything else, you're trying to move the top left and the bottom right. You're trying to move up to that top right quadrant. And so in that very tactical, specific example you gave of email newsletter subscribers, you would say it is people who subscribe to my newsletter and have adopted my belief system around how to solve the collective problem we're trying to solve. How do I know if they've adopted? Do they need to go into the community and actually create the account? I think that's where you have to have some proxies. I think that's the one that's hard. So I think if you know they're sharing and advocating and everything that they have done that, I think the question is, do you then do some sampling and some surveying of those people who are reading your email newsletter around like, hey, you know, do you believe X, Y, and Z? And like say, oh, okay, well, 40% of the people who open this newsletter do. And so my community is roughly like 40% of my newsletter opens for this specific channel, right? Right. I'm not saying that's the perfect methodology, but it is a methodology to get you there. No, it's a fascinating topic because this is where most people are getting tripped up. Totally. When I talk about community historically, what I've been talking about is literally the Slack channel, the Discord channel, like people yeah. having to be in the community. Where people are coming together. Where people are coming together. And that's why I've been arguing against the fact that I don't think as many companies are going to struggle to grow a large, meaningful community because those things are hard to grow. If you include content, then many companies have already built a large community. I agree with you that it's not as simple as just like including your subscribers. It's not binary. It's it's not the Slack group and it's not the email newsletter is the point I'm trying to make. It's some group of people in the middle. My methodology is basically trying to help you find the people that are in the middle. Right. And I think this is actually where one of the huge steps or mind shifts or frameworks that we need to move into community-led is missing mm -hmm. because companies are struggling to, I think, move from that community or product thinking to this community or practice, which is much more, when I think about community, I think of two problems you have to solve, which is your horizontal and vertical problem, your depth and breadth problem. Mm -hmm. So community or product, we focus a lot on depth, right? How do we deeply engage those customers because it's a smaller group of people. We can spend much more of our time trying to obsess over how do I engage this cohort of people? And they're all there for the same reason. Yeah, They're trying to become better on your product. We're moving to, and it's going to be a, a harder challenge, is community of practice means you have to care about breadth as well as depth. Yeah. So breadth means if you really want to build a large community, and again, we should try to separate the media part of this and the actual community community, I'm talking about the community community, you have to acquire a lot of different personas if you want it to become a real marketing lever for your business. And then community only works if you nail the depth part. So now you have to actually try to figure out how to build a vertical engagement for each of those persona types, right? So you actually have much more complex community to build. And I think what we're lacking at the moment and maybe we can find someone to come on the show and talk us through this, is a great framework in terms of what community is and isn't in a community or practice. And basically, how do you think about that horizontal and vertical approach to building a community or practice? I love that. Look, one of the things we're committing to on this show is a constant ongoing dialogue around community and its impact in marketing and community-led growth as a newer frontier of marketing. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about it. I thought we had a pretty good discussion. My mind was blown a couple of times today. So I think, I think that was pretty amazing. I want to spend the last couple minutes changing topics, Karen. Yes, let's do it. I wanted to talk a little bit less about marketing, but I think stuff people need to hear. In terms of closing out this Twitter sode, there's an awesome article from a guy named Kevin Kelly. He's an author. He works at Wired. His site is kk.org. And he just turned 70. And he said, he published an article on 103 bits of advice I'd wish I'd known. And the 1003 fans, I think that's him. Oh, yeah, 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 yes, yes. Yeah. And he's a really smart guy. But I thought there were some really interesting pieces of advice. And I wanted to share a couple of my top ones with the audience and get your takes on them. 
The first one is making art is not selfish. It's for the rest of us. If you don't do your thing, you are cheating us. Mm -hmm. Next one, there are three things you need. The ability to not give up something until it works. The ability to give up on something that does not work. And the trust in other people to help you distinguish between the two. <laughs> that's, that, that's a great one. That is a great one. Isn't that amazing? That's a great one. And there's some really simple ones, right? Like when checking references for a job applicant, employers may be reluctant or prohibited from saying anything negative. So leave or send a message that says, get back to me if you highly recommend this applicant as super great. If they don't reply, take that as a negative. <laughs> and like, that's a really interesting, like some of these things are hacks and everything, but it's actually like pretty interesting. I'll give you a couple last ones. 90% of everything is crap. If you think you don't like opera, romance novels, TikTok, country music, vegan food, NFTs, keep trying to see if you can find the 10% that is not crap. He's talking about Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's give you your take on a couple of these because I think, I, I think they're good. <laughs> to rapidly reveal the true character of a person you just met, move them onto an abysmally slow internet connection. Observe. <laughs> <laughs> so... Are you a bad person if you throw your computer through the window? I think he's saying you're a bad person, yes. Oh, God, I'm a bad person. I'm terrible <laughs> with Wi-Fi speed. <laughs> he says, copying others is a good way to start. Copying yourself is a disappointing way to end. <laughs> Man, he's got some good uh, sound bites. This is one of my favorites. I'm going to give you the last one. All right, let's do it. If you loan someone $20 and you never see them again because they're avoiding paying you back, that makes it worth $20. Oh, I like that one. <laughs> yes. Right? Isn't that, isn't that one dope? Because it's kind of back to the topic of community, where you're testing like the strength and depth of a relationship and an engagement, which I think is pretty interesting. I think he's got the amount of money that would take a little bit on the low side. At, at least for the people <laughs> I, I would want to give it to, I bet you they would need a lot more money than that. <laughs> but, uh, fair, fair, maybe. But I don't know, 20 bucks. Or if they don't care to pay it back, right? So I think it's an interesting signal, right, of how much they care and how much they think about you. The one where you give that he says people need to give up on the things that are not working. Yeah. That's probably the one that is hardest and resonates with me. It's so hard, especially for anybody who's doing marketing. Right. You kind of like spin up a program and you do it and you're like, oh, if I have some more time, it's going to work. Exactly. You and I have had a bunch of those and we're like, oh, yeah. Yes, a lot. <laughs> this is going to work. This is going to work. We're going to figure it out. And then like two years later, you're like, it didn't work and we were idiots. Yeah. There's a lot of those uh, dead kind of projects that are kind of half dead all over the place. Yeah. No one went to give up on something and double down on the things that are working is truly an art form. Well, and I love that the third part of that was have a network of people that help you. Yeah, distinguish between those two things. To help distinguish between those two. And so I think if you're listening to this show and all of the crazy conversation we had today, one thing you can go do is like, think about who are the people out there when you're thinking about making a big strategy, when you're thinking about making a big buying decision, who can help you determine and help you do it in a really good way. And if you don't have them, think about what it takes to go and build that connection with a handful of folks who you can really trust. And leave us a review. <laughs> i'd say crunchy or smooth team crunchy too smooth uh, but in all seriousness i thought there, that list of 103 things are amazing uh leave us a review with which piece of advice in that post that you thought was the most interesting yes please do. because there were a ton that i loved that i did not get to i've read it a couple times and that was one of the better synthesis of a life i've heard in a long time Karen, are you you going to go sauna now? Are you going to go eat some crunchy peanut butter? Like, what's what's happening? The thing I'm going to do now is I'm going to get a herbal tea. And I just want to say to all of our listeners, if you want to own a one-of-a-kind checkmate, 
I mean, like this checkmate was a checkmate for heaven. Please at me at Search Brad. It's going to be in the marketplace this evening on the Polygon Network. And get it while it's hot. This thing is going to sell out like hotcakes. Kit might buy it, even though he says he won't. He's an NFT junkie. He might end up buying it. Uh, maybe I'll give him the equivalent of one US dollar for this NFT, just so he can feel good about selling it to everybody. Well, uh, next time, report back if this said NFT has been sold. I will. We want to know, okay? And until then, everybody, thanks for listening to Marketing Against the Grain. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and have a great week.